Sukyukyet, Ukakli Smoky Sumac, and this is the Az Kanaki podcast, where we tell two versions of the same story. Here on Az Kanaki, we understand that colonization is the breaking of relationships. It is our original instructions to hold relationships at the center of everything, whether that be relationships to our lands, waters, children, plants, animals, or to each other. In the spirit of respect for our relations, I send out a prayer for Akhames Kapikapsin, all living things. I hope that you, our listeners, are finding space to breathe, rest, and find joy and pleasure today. May this episode bring you something needed. This episode contains conversations about grief, loss, death of close relations, including children, amputation, cancer, birth, adoption, and adoption trauma, disability and combating ableism, anger, therapy, gratitude, struggling with hating parts of ourselves, holding the complexity, divorce, memoir, grief symptoms, and the critique of the five stages, allowing space for all kinds of feelings, challenging binary thinking, sorrow, numbness, survivorship, luck, sadness, public versus private experiences, moving, patience, the pandemic, growing around our grief, and becoming okay. If you are impacted by any of the following content, please be gentle with yourself and reach out to someone safe for support. You are not alone. Thank you for listening to the Az Kanaki Podcast. What feels like lifetimes ago, when I was an undergraduate student at Simon Fraser University, I had the honor of supporting the First Nations Student Association as a board member. Part of our work was hosting a feast every year to thank SFU students for the funding they provided our organization. The goal of that feast was to celebrate and honor Indigenous cultures, and of course, to feed the people. During my run as a board member, we had a fantastic group of students, including one of my longtime friends, Janelle Silverwolf, who is featured on an earlier episode of the show. In our group of students, we were passionate about Indigenous performance, and we aimed to invite as many Indigenous musicians, dance groups, and writers to join us for feast day and bring life to SFU's Convocation Mall with their work. When I sought out recommendations for Indigenous musicians and performers in the Vancouver area, Krista Couture's name came up. And I'm so deeply grateful for that moment that would turn into more than 10 years of connection and friendship. This episode centers on one of my favorite topics, yet one that our society tends to shy away from. I asked Krista to join us here on Az Kanaki to talk with me about grief. Krista will share what she lovingly calls her grief bio with us in a few minutes. Suffice it to say, for now, that she has learned to hold more grief than most of us are familiar with. This is why... When I was faced with one of the hardest losses in my life, although perhaps ranking losses doesn't really fit when they are all connected and entangled. In any case, when I was faced with losing the woman who named me Smokey, my ceremony mom, Ka Manatla, the late Carol Edelman warrior, Krista was one of the first people I called. I remember standing in the parking lot of an old motel in Chinook, Montana, talking to Krista as the trains and the trucks drove by. I remember telling her the details of what I had just been through, of what I was in the midst of, Carol's death, our family's grief, wake and funeral preparations. 
I remember Krista telling me, you know, it's funny, I'm supposed to be some kind of expert on grief, and yet all I can say is I'm sorry. All I can tell you is that it's a long road. Krista held my grief with such love and care, as she has held her own for so many years and so many losses. Today I want to start by asking Krista to read a selection from her memoir, titled How to Lose Everything, published with Douglas and McIntyre in 2020. This excerpt refers to the amputation of Krista's left leg due to bone cancer when Krista was 13 years old. From then on, the anniversary of my leg being amputated became Peg Leg Day, a day of celebration, a day to honor that my life was saved. But I didn't hear anyone telling me that this was awful, I told the therapist that this was sad and terrifying, that I was losing something. I felt conflicted saying it even then because I was lucky, I was so lucky that there was a cure. I was grateful and thought that gratitude should subsume all else. But recently I've been struggling with anger. I would lose my footing and feel anger. I tripped and I felt anger. I got a sore on my stump and I felt anger. I couldn't find a parking space close to my destination, and I felt anger. The grocery bags were too heavy to carry. The snow was too thick to walk through. Whenever I reached my limitations, I was overcome with frustration and bitterness. I don't want to hate part of myself, I said, struggling to find the clearer truth in that. My therapist did it for me. Sounds like you already do hate it, though. And we waited while I cried. It may be if you could grieve the loss, you would feel less anger. And then what? I asked. I couldn't imagine being on the other side. You would find out, he said. But what I'm saying is you have a right to feel frustrated. You have a right to struggle with the complexity. Thank you, and welcome, my dear friend, Krista Kutcher. Thank you. Thank you for reading that piece. I think of Cherokee writer and Indigiqueer uncle Daniel Heath Justice, who often tells us we must hold the complexities. Mm. I think of the power of allowing ourselves to be angry in grief, of allowing space to grieve. I know that in my own relationship with you, I have felt clumsy in moments when learning of your losses. I won't share those stories now. I still have pangs of shame when thinking about some of them. (laughs) But I will ask you what I did in our meetings prior to this episode, something that still felt even a bit awkward to ask. I think because of how limited we are in talking about loss and grief in the everyday. You give us space to have these conversations, and for that, I am grateful. In fact, when I asked how to introduce our audience to you, you smiled and said, oh, yes, I can do my grief bio. (laughs) (laughs) So I ask, would you help us, our audience, get to know you in this way now for those who may not know your work yet? Yeah, my grief bio, it's a handy tool. (laughs) That list, it's really a bullet list. It's a grief bullet form, is cancer, amputation, death, death, divorce, cancer. And the slightly longer version of that is that I had bone cancer when I was uh, a kid. I was 11 years old. And was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma. And when I was 13, my left leg was amputated above the knee as the cure for that cancer. And then my first son 
died as a newborn, and that was the first death. The second death was that my second son died at 14 months old. The divorce that came after those losses that my marriage just didn't survive, those experiences. And then I had thyroid cancer, another type of cancer in my 30s that brought my career as a singer-songwriter to a halt for a while. And so those are the the kind of key, I think we could all write a grief bio. <laughs> we <laughs> probably all have these like key moments. They're often the moments where you're like, and that's when everything changed. <laughs> <laughs> and that's mine. Mm. Thank you. I just give that a little pause for mm. listeners who are hearing it for the first time. Yeah. If that is you, I truly hope you go out and find a copy of Krista's memoir, How to Lose Everything, which is also available on audiobook, and Krista reads it herself. I chose that specific selection because it made me think of a phone call we had. I think I was a few months into grieving Carol, and I remember being very angry. I remember talking to you about it, and I think you said something like, did I ever think I'd be the person yelling at someone in the shopper's parking lot? <laughs> no, but here we are. <laughs> One of the the things about grief is that so many of the, like, I don't, I want to say symptoms or stages, which, of course, my researcher brain has to say it's important for you all to know that the five stages of grief were actually coined for people who were facing their own deaths rather than loss around them. So I encourage you to look more about that elsewhere. But mm -hmm. for this conversation, what I'm thinking about is how unfamiliar we can become to ourselves within grief. Mm. And in this section, I just hoping you can share with us more about meeting yourself in anger mm. and the, the anger of grief as this section that you read speaks to. Yeah. I mean, and I also have been the person yelling in the shopper's drug mart. What is it? Shopper's. <laughs> so I've been the person sobbing in the aisles in the shopper's. Also, I just want to say, yes, that the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief thing is not helpful. It's very simplistic. I wish it was not so pervasive. Yes, it's everywhere. <laughs> and like a lot of people have like, I don't know if disproven is the word. A lot of people have pointed out why it's problematic or doesn't really work. And really grief, like Grief is this kind of big, I think of it now as this like umbrella term for sorrow, for mm. anger, for numbness, for all of the things that happen when you're grieving. And I think part of my understanding of my process with coming to kind of terms with that anger was understanding it's part of grief. It's not a separate piece. Um, and that there's so much that comes under this experience of grief. You know, I think sometimes people are like, oh, you're grieving, you're sad. And it's mm -hmm. like, I'm grieving and I'm pissed off. <laughs> I'm grieving and I feel nothing. I'm grieving and I can't stop crying, you know. But it was interesting around like in that reading, because the loss of my leg was tied to this story of survivorship mm -hmm. and luck, good luck. And it is, it is, I, I feel so lucky, but I, I didn't yet know how to hold that complexity of like, I can feel lucky and I can feel sadness. I can struggle with it. I think too, there was this way that I felt like how I am publicly, like how I am on Instagram or the things that I do when I'm giving a talk or whatever. And I, in my work, in my public life, to combat ableism and to challenge people who look at me and go, oh, you only have one leg. Yikes. I'm sorry. And I'm like, oh, it's not that bad. <laughs> like, it's fine. I'm fine. My body's 
as great and weird as yours. And so sometimes because of like everything around us that it's like, oh, disability. And I'm like, no, it's fine. Yay, disability. And so for me to be like, actually, sometimes it sucks feels risky because mm-hmm. I feel like then there's people who are going to be like, I knew it. I knew it. And I'm like, no, mm-hmm. no, that's not what I'm saying. And and so that was even part of this piece of like, how can I be angry about this thing when I'm also angry at the world that tells me it's not okay to have this thing? So there was all these different sides of it. And ultimately, it was just trying to find space to feel like all those things can be true at once. <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> and yes. Just because some days I don't like only having one leg, it doesn't mean that there's something you know wrong with my body or that ultimately I don't love my body or accept my body. And and just trying to have more patience with that like flow, that very human flow of good and bad days is sort of a simplification. But like there's going to be days that you know we feel different things, and it doesn't have to be one single view about my disability. But I think, yeah, that I was in a way holding myself back from those other parts of grieving the Mm -hmm. loss of my leg because I was so reluctant to feel the anger piece. Mm -hmm. This is a very long answer to your question. No, that's great. (laughs) But, you know, so I was like having the anger because I wasn't letting myself also feel those other things of like, the regret I have had about my disability, the the ways I have felt left out, the f- things I have felt I have missed out on. And even as I'm saying this to you, Smokey, like I feel that sense of risk of like, I don't want people to know <laughs> 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 because it's still like my, my shtick is to be like a champion for this. But I don't know if we're at a point where other people can kind of embrace that complexity. But once I was like, oh, right, like, I need to feel those other things and then that will allow this anger to move through because I was just stuck at anger mm-hmm. because I wasn't letting those other aspects of grief come out. Yeah, I mean, I I think I totally understand this. And I, I mean, this podcast, there's a lot of moments where we've been like, should we be saying this? <laughs> and so I really hope our audiences can hold the complexities of who we are. Yeah. So one of the stories I, I, I had Richard Van Camp on as Kanaki as well. Mm, Richard. And yes, we love Richard. I, <laughs> we love you, Richard. <laughs> we, Uncle Richard. <laughs> and so talking about anger was so important. And I, one of the stories I shared with Richard on that episode was that I was working with somatic practitioner Kai Chang Tom, mm. who helped me connect to my own grief and loss as an infant. Mm. And... For those of you who don't know or didn't hear that episode, I, I spent the first two months of my life in foster care as a newborn. And at the time I was working with Kai Chang, I was also reading a book called The Primal Wound, mm. which is from 1993. And it's kind of the first adoption research to center the experience of the adoptees, actually, when talking about adoption. Mm. So Nancy Verrier, Verrier, or Verrier, I'm not sure how to pronounce, but uh, the author of the book, Nancy makes the point that up until her research, most adoption conversations discuss the parents and all kinds of other things without acknowledging that the children are actually there, that they actually experience the adoption. So they were in the womb, we were in the womb, and then all of a sudden we're separated from our mothers, mm-hmm. handed to strangers. And of course, this echo, these two different stories, right? You're talking about your leg. I'm lucky I lived, right? right. Of course, I love my adoptive family. You know, I wouldn't be where I am without my family that raised me and yet 
in this book, it was one of the first times I had truly felt seen for the trauma that is inherent in adoption, mm-hmm. the trauma that is inherent in, you know, what you've been through. And so in this way, I've sort of just made this connection of how adoption narratives tell us we should feel lucky and happy mm-hmm. and grateful and it should be this happy time. And in that way, it discounts adoption breakdowns. Yeah, Nancy Verrier writes as a mother who was struggling with adoption. I, I know I've read a lot of other parents that struggle with, you know, adoption breaking down and they're sort of taught like, well, I'm supposed to love the child as if they're my own. And if we're not complicating the grief around this, then we're not allowing children to grow up, mm-hmm. acknowledging that experience. And so I guess it struck me because I, the story I told in Richard's episode, when Kai Cheng Tom, she said, I, I, I was like, well, there's a there's a baby and it's screaming, right? Like we're, we're connecting to like those mm-hmm. inner children. You know, we talk about therapy. Everyone, Chris and I will say, go to therapy. We all yeah. need to. Internal final systems work. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so doing the inner child and... Kai Chang was like, can you hold the baby? And I was like, no, Mm. that baby's angry. (laughs) Like, Mm. I don't, I don't want to go near that baby. (laughs) The babies aren't supposed to be angry, I said to her. And she just started laughing because she was like, I think babies are angry like, Oh, they're so a mad. lot of the time, <laughs> right? Like yeah. they're just mad. Just like what the fuck? Why is am this? I out in yeah. the world? <laughs> right? And so it was this way to change and and to honor anger, to allow it to be there, to allow these feelings to be there. That you know, the same way of like I can be grateful and yeah. happy and live this life. And yet I can also carry this this primal wound or whatever we want to call it. But I can also feel all the feelings. And I was laughing when you were saying that because my partner and I have this practice where I'll say, well, how are you? And he'll go, good. And I'll go, I want five feelings. Mm. <laughs> I was like, I want, I want to know five things about how you feel. Because, you know, we're so used to just being like, we're good. It's yeah. okay. Everything's fine. And I think it's revolutionary to be like, oh, I can feel tired and a bit sad and also excited and also angry about this other thing in the world or whatever mm-hmm. all at once so mm-hmm. yeah I wanted to just make those connections and the way you describe the celebration day for your amputation it made mm-hmm. me think of that and what do we do with these other feelings yeah gosh I have so many uh one thing that comes there's a f- number of things that come to mind about this I mean when you talk about that primal wound I the first thing that came to mind for me being someone who's given birth three times and just to like absolutely make clear that I'm a 90s queer and quote Ani DeFranco there's like <laughs> some like line where she says the most radical thing you can do is split yourself oh, in yeah. two oh yeah and like you're one body and then there's two bodies and so <laughs> at the, you know in the before and after and it's it's wild it's mind blowing and so I can imagine being that second on either side of that there's such a separation even in the becoming two much mm-hmm. less for them those two parts to be separated and yeah thank you for sharing that in that episode mm-hmm. and and your you know your process of discovering that then also a thing that goes on is like this is I feel like another way that like binary thinking harms us because we're like mm-hmm. is it good or is it bad it's one or the other mm-hmm. you know and then it's like but if we choose one we're either leaving a lot of people are experiences out we're just we can't just pick one thing it's not how it works even though as humans that's not how we work why are we fixated on making it 
try to fit something like a binary mm-hmm. clear choose one you know mm-hmm. and so yeah like exactly there was this idea like, like let's celebrate the day that you lost your leg because this is the day i mean that that day that i woke up at home i can't remember if this is in the book it might be and i came out into the kitchen and my mom had written a card and it was on mm-hmm. the counter and it was like today is the day that you get a new body and it's a cancer-free body mm-hmm. and i'm so grateful and happy that you know, that will be the case because I'd been on chemotherapy and radiotherapy. It would have been two years of cancer treatment. And now this was going to be the thing that was going to change, going to let me get better, you know, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this idea that's narrative like you got adopted. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. And yeah, but like when we put the emphasis too much on one side, we're hurting ourselves by not allowing those other things. But there's such a trick to it, too, because I feel like the experience I've had with grief, and I mean, I'm glad that when I said to you, it's a long road, that that felt, if, if it, I don't know if it felt meaningful, I don't put words in your mouth, but like, mm-hmm. at least it didn't feel dismissive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad that you weren't like, thanks, Krista. Uh, <laughs> this, I'm, like, I'm in shock and heartbroken. Okay. <laughs> but I think, I think I called you because of that. Right. Because it was real. Because it, right. it wasn't... Oh, you'll be okay. No, because you're not going to be okay. I know. I, like, I'm, a, I'm a completely changed person. I'm a yes. completely changed person. Yes. You lost who you were. Mm-hmm. That's hard. But I think if I had said to you, you're going to feel better, that would probably shut down some part of you or maybe hurt or feel like mm-hmm. you're not being seen. But the trick if, if I'm like, yeah, this is awful. I don't know when it will get better. I don't know what will happen. That might actually make you feel feel better Mm -hmm. and these words are lacking but like there's sort of like an interesting trick when we can just like name that it's messy and hard and painful instead of like let's celebrate it's gonna be okay it like actually makes it okay (laughs) so I'm always struck by the way you honor grief that is outside of literal death as well as death, of course. We know that we've been through those as well. But for example, here we were talking about the loss of your leg. The book also connects loss through divorce and through moving. Mm. Your music does this as well. And I think I've been thinking of this a lot because this fall, the fall of 2022, is the first time I am not moving houses in 15 years. Oh, my God. I'm looking back at it going, there was a lot of grief in leaving every house that I created or whatever. And then not only that, but I'm now grieving the movement. Uh. Like I'm now going, like I'm literally going, maybe I should move back to Peterborough. And like Eli's just like putting up with me of like all these exit strategies I come up with every day because I'm panicking at staying. Yeah. And I know yourself, you've moved, like, we've done this cross-country moves, right? And I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. Oh, I so relate to that because I also, I moved to Toronto from Vancouver eight years ago and I've moved house nine times and I've now been in this place I'm in now just over a year and I have part of me that's like, all right, should we, should we go? Yeah. (laughs) Because it's just like a habit or something, even though every one of those moves was not really by choice. It's like in this season, I'm supposed (laughs) to be packing a box. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's like a discomfort in not kind of going through that motion because I'm so used to like that cycle of like, we've been here a period of time. That means we have to leave. 
And I find it very hard. And this comes from my childhood, not just that I've moved so much. I find it hard to relax into a place because mm. I often feel like, but I'm going to have to leave. And so mm. I'm trying to like, for me, that like grieving of moving is also trying to like grieve that I didn't have that sense of staying. <laughs> I, <laughs> right? Know, say, a sense of like a safe place to stay. Yeah. Moving from Vancouver to Toronto I mean, at first I didn't know it was going to be a permanent move. I was just going for a year. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe I was kidding myself, but it wasn't really until I made the decision to like, okay, I'm going to stay in Toronto. And I went back to Vancouver to officially like sublet my place and sublet my mm -hmm. cat. Like I just had to go back and get everything. <laughs> sublet the cat. <laughs> yeah. Like and like that. ship it all across, get the cat, get the stuff. That when I went back and I'd made the decision that I was like, uh oh, what have I done? Mm -hmm. And... I don't know. I mean, I'd been in Vancouver 17 years. I'd moved there when I was 18. Like, I became an adult there. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Edmonton, but my I became this adult life started in Vancouver, 17 years of life there. And my sons were born there and or in the time that I lived there. And I and I have such strong community there and so many relationships, you know, friends and work people and all the layers that you build over time. Mm -hmm. And. I realized it was like, oh, I don't have, I'm leaving that. <laughs> I, yeah. like, and I didn't really feel the impact of leaving that kind of network or that kind of web around me mm -hmm. until I decided to leave it. And I've now been in Toronto eight years, but the very slow work, and there's no way to hurry it up, no. the slow building of a web, right? Mm -hmm. You can't make that happen fast. And I've missed that. I miss being well known by mm -hmm. people. I miss being very familiar to people in person. I miss having a lot of shared experiences with people that I had from that home. Yeah. You know? I think even as you're talking about this, I'm thinking, well, I want to quote our mutual friend, Tara Williamson, who was mm. like, oh, it takes three years to make home. Mm. I am just hitting the three-year mark. Like, yes, I've moved houses every year, but I did about seven years in Vancouver. I had one year in Saskatoon, and then I was five years in Peterborough, and now I've been three years at home and mm -hmm. I'm starting to realize what that means. I like that she put the three years on it because it, mm -hmm. it's it's true. And then as you're talking about this, I'm realizing it's resonating as well with like this pandemic. And like, I remember I had just moved and I was about six months in March 2020 happened. Mm. And I remember being like, I wish I was in Peterborough yeah. because I could have helped more because I knew people that would have needed help more, whereas I didn't know community enough and it was very difficult to be like you're not supposed to visit and you're not you know yeah. all these kind of things but also then I would have this thing of like I want to go to Peterborough and sit in the garden and, and then I'd be like hey there's a pandemic everywhere like we're mm. we're all sort of grieving this world that we had before and even now as I settle into this like home life when I travel I'm going oh I don't really want to see everyone or I can't or yeah. You know, the world has changed in this way that I think we are somewhat familiar with because of what we've been through in our lives. Hmm. Yeah, it was so interesting. Like, my book came out in September 2020. And mm. for me personally, to be like, guys, I'm okay. I'm okay. Like, for the first time <laughs> in 15 years, I'm not the one in crisis. But now there's this global crisis. And of course, I was impacted by it, too. Right. But to look around and be like, oh, here's people who who are kind of experiencing these losses in a way that they haven't before. 
I mean, the it, the pandemic is heartbreaking, and there's been so like a level of loss that I can't really wrap my head around as mm-hmm. far as the number of deaths and uh, I the universal experience of that we've all lost like a sense of safety. We've all lost. I think even potential because we sort of could see or imagine what our near future was. And now mm-hmm. most of the time we're all like, I don't know what's coming. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'll do this next week. Maybe I won't like it canceled. You never know. Yeah. And it's always been true that nothing is certain, you know, but like, it's so vividly uncertain. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is like uncomfortable. You know, there's the, what's the saying? Like you, hope for the best but prepare for the worst yeah but i feel like now we don't really quite hope for the best now we're just prepared for the worst all the time and that is a loss like it's a loss to feel that a bit of ease like we have lost ease i think and maybe there was an assumption in that ease and certainly for a lot of us myself and you know a privilege in that ease because not everyone (laughs) like i'm making really broad statements Mm -hmm. many people have not been living with ease or certainty or safety but like the fact that now every single person <laughs> right. has lost that, I think, is remarkable. And so when my book came out in September 2020, people were like, wow, this is a book about how to lose things. <laughs> right. And we're now all going, what? what? I mean, I, and I, I understand this because I wrote love poems for the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And then we walked into like the end of know, the world, like the end of the world. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing. And I talk about it a lot as sort of. um like I've been doing talks about two spirit writers and queer writers and you know this this story that we're connected in a way like it's it's not like I don't want to get all wishy-washy and be like oh you're connected to something but it's you know this idea that you wrote this book at this moment and that we have this feeling it's not even like we planned it to come mm-hmm. you know you can't no, this yeah. is, these are things you can't plan but like that it's like tapped in I was talking about you know I wrote love poems for the end of the world and Kai Cheng Tom had love note a trans girl's love notes at the end of the world and billy ray had this wound as the world and you've got how to lose everything and you know i mean i think we, god we're apocalyptic we're, yeah, hey? so we're, like it's not just because we're indigenous we've lived through a, know, multiple right? apocalypses but yeah yeah i that's actually uh, i that's beautiful smoky because i feel like i i haven't thought about that aspect of connection and what is just kind of, i'm just going to share what's like coming to mind is that like for me writing this book was obviously deeply personal and it's mm-hmm. it's a memoir and it's my intention was to kind of hold these sad stories in a way that people could you know that that would be genuine and would be vulnerable but that wouldn't overwhelm I don't want to feel like I'm like dumping things on people's laps but they get to like look at it and then they get to connect with their own sad mm-hmm. stories and and we make I say we maybe you don't agree with this but like for me writing songs and recording them or like publishing this book like I share the work I make for a number of reasons one of them is because it's how I express myself Mm -hmm. like it's self-serving to express myself that's what I need to do and then it's also to connect and have an offering and make an offering and then it's also been like a source of income or whatever there's all these different parts Mm -hmm. but I hadn't connected the like by me sharing this very personal story and it landing in the world at this time that that kind of made me part of something, mm-hmm. you know, in the way that I think I conf- I felt very alone with some of my losses and for it to come out in this time, actually maybe for even me meant I was not alone mm. because it was, it happened to come out at this moment where everyone was going, I get it. I see it. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know? And so that's, it's nice to think about that timing that you're right. Isn't planned, but is mm-hmm. there's like, 
still a connection that can be made. I really appreciate this because this is, yeah, it's just exactly where I want this episode to go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, but I, I stopped reading long I, in the script. Oh, it's good. It. It's good because I keep skipping things in the okay. script. But I'm not looking. No, like all of this, like what we're talking about here, that when you say, because I felt alone in my grief, mm-hmm. but I'm not alone, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of my stories around that. But I also want to talk a little bit about the song that I've chose to feature on this episode. And first of all, let me say, Krista, it was so hard to choose a song. Because, <laughs> you know, like I'm, a, I'm like a fan, like I'm... Like I probably listen to your album, like at least one of your albums, once a month. Like Aww, it's it's all spooky. it's constant in my house. Um, one of the like best moments of my performing life was singing at the Garnet and you sitting there singing along and knowing every single word. I do, like I do, and I could see you, and it felt so good. I was like, someone listens. <laughs> I do. I listen, and I like, and and for people listening, I want you to know, I think Chris Kutcher is the most underrated in, musician in Canada. Like you yeah. have to get. Get the albums, um, Thank you. and you know, and do do honor this work because I think it's it's phenomenal. I once was like, oh, I was talking to a fellow musician, and I won't name them here, but I was like, oh, don't you cover Krista's song? And they're like, no, Krista's way better musically than I am. I can't, <laughs> I can't do that. And so, um, yeah, I just want to share that. But the song that I did choose is "Hopeless Situation," hmm. and it, it's because of the line, "I'm not lonely here," for "Lost hmm. Became My Lover." And it makes me want to quote that whole piece. I'm not lonely here for lost became my lover. And she is charming and disarming. And she likes to dance around the garden of my floundering family tree. My love for her is something no one seems to understand. Hmm. And I think... I think it's always weird to hear us quoted back to ourselves. Right? You're <laughs> I'm like, like, I said that? <laughs> yeah, you said that. You said that. You sang it. I sang <laughs> And I think of these lyrics so often. I mean, I, mm. a lot of times your lyrics come and um, and I wanted to, it's, it's funny that that's why I said the segue, because I wanted to talk about loneliness. And to quote my piece in the animated series, which I, I will talk about in the end, I'm just hoping to talk about loneliness and this the grief you fell in love with, like this idea that mm. grief keeps you company almost yeah it i think you know grief is lonely and as much as it's universal and we all experience loss it's also so specific you know like even like your loss of carol is Mm -hmm. yours and it's not like anyone else's loss of carol right Mm -hmm. because it's what you lost that what she was to you and you were to her like that can only exist between the two of you and so there's always going to be a part of grief that is lonely and alone, even though it's this everyone feels loss, but there's such specificity too, I think, that is important. But then I think there's ways that grief unnecessarily can feel like an exile because of the, you know, culturally that we don't handle it well. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, after the death of my first son and the death of my second son, I was like, wow, grief lives here now. Mm-hmm. She has moved in. So I need to get to know her. And here's another, Krista was a 90s queer, but there was like a Tori Amos interview I had read at one mm-hmm. point where she was talking about sorrow and she was like, I don't know why sorrow gets such a bad rep. Like sorrow wants to go get a latte and go get her nails done, but she just happens to know where tears come from. Mm-hmm. And I loved that idea because there's also a Kenny Starr song that I loved because I can tell you where tears come from. It's like, 
sorrow and grief are also these complex things. And so for, for loss to become my lover, it was like, I'm going to get to know all the sides of of loss. I'm going to get to know that, you know, they like to sit around and watch TV. They like to eat cake. They like to go for a mm-hmm. walk outside. I'm like, it's just like, how can I build like a relationship with this? Because I can't fight it. Like she lives here now. So I've got to you know, get to know it. And that personifying it, I have found really useful. Like my my sweetheart, when we were first dating, they were talking about kind of their own experience with depression. And and I was like, well, when depression was your roommate, like what kind of roommate were they, you mm. know? And it's like, so it feels like when I ask people in that way, it's like, it's easy to talk about. Well, it's like, well, they don't, the house is a real mess when, they, when they're there. <laughs> or like, um, you know, I don't mind so much. Like, it, I don't know. There's just like it to personify it helped me think about my relationship to it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do love that. And I and I was uh, I do have a question in here that I was like, so can you tell us about finding other love since grief or with grief? And then I was thinking, like, are we all polyamorous with grief or with depression? <laughs> like, you know, these roommates or these kind of things. Right. Like, I, I right. love that. Because, yeah, when you get into, like, a relationship with a human and you're like, hey, these other things are here with me, by the way. Yeah, like, I also have cats and a dog and this other <laughs> and, thing. And grief and In the trunk yeah. that comes around with me sometimes, yeah. right? And I think, like, again, to connect to earlier talking about the different emotions, right? To be able to be real about that. Yes. And to not try to come to the, like, I mean, I don't, it's it's wild in my relationship for me thinking about how and we've talked about this a lot before but like those roller coaster relationships that mm. you know I was in for many years and thinking that that was love because I was trying always trying to court when I have mm. a whole section of my book courting with love poems right and Kai Chang Tom published her vows at her wedding and her vows are one of the pieces is like why I don't write poems mm. about you and it was it gave me this access to like, oh, because I've always been like, oh, I'm sorry, hun, that I don't write all these poems. I wrote poems mm-hmm. about all these people in my life. Mm-hmm. And now there's this person who I'm going to marry. And in Kai Cheng's work, it was like, like, I write poems to ask questions and you've I've never had to question you like you're the answer. And this really beautiful piece that stood out to me and, and recognizing that, you know, the person that takes me fully as I am that I can show all these things to Hmm. and I want to say that I probably could have shown all these things to many of those exes I didn't though because I for of who I was right and where I was at and so yeah that that different shift Hmm. anyways yeah (laughs) I hear that I hear that (laughs) You know, the premise for this podcast is Oz Kanaki. So telling these two different stories and I bring a story to every piece. And the story I wanted to tell today is about what what you just spoke to that you hadn't really thought of was the ways that grief can make us feel like we're completely alone and remembering that we're not. Mm. I've been thinking of this loneliness and loss becoming my lover and then the ways we sort of move in and out of that. So just after Carol died... Our family was on what I lovingly call our first grief tour. (laughs) To give a little context, Carol lived most of her life in Seattle, and a few of my siblings are still there. She was Alutic and A'anin, so Alaska Native and from Montana. Her grandparents met at Chamawa Boarding School in Oregon. 
So when she passed, we gathered at her homelands, where she's buried in Fort Belknap, Montana. And at the time of her passing, she was living in Ithaca, New York, teaching at Cornell University. So we eventually had to return there, but we visited many family members and honored our grief by keeping ourselves moving on the road. A kind of devastated family band we named Dragas and the Sads. (laughs) so on our way back from seattle where we had stayed together as long as we could we stopped in at one of our elders houses in montana right near flathead lake as we were sitting at her kitchen table she shared with us the story of her own sweetheart's death many years before later while we were driving shawano told us how her story had reminded him that we aren't the only ones to live through something like this not even close It gave us some small comfort to know there were others who had been through it, who had survived it. And I think that's a lot of what you've shared with how to lose everything with your songs, all the stories of grief that you give us. Hmm. It was then, I want to say nearly a year later, that we were in a diner in Duluth, Minnesota, and Shawano had invited some people. It turned out he had friends and family in the area. And we were all there. I think there was about 12 of us, all connected from various times in his life, but we didn't really know each other. I remember him sharing that this was the first real moment he was able to remember and feel like he wasn't alone. Mm -hmm. And I believe that this is what sharing our grief stories and allowing people to be around us in our grief does for us. That's the story I want to share. And and Mm -hmm. I think we've talked a little bit about you just coming to understand how that work does that. And I wonder for you how, how you've come to not see it as... I mean, is grief your only lover now? Or was it ever your Mm. only lover? (laughs) I mean, this is... (laughs) No, I mean, well, first I want to say, yes, I think what's so powerful about sharing our grief, whether that's with one person in conversation or a group of people, whether that's on a stage with an audience or through the pages of a book or reading a book and receiving someone's story, it's so incredible that both sides get to feel this, alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like you and I get to share this and we both get to feel less alone. It's not just one of us who's like, oh, I feel comforted. Thank you. It's like we both get to go, OK, OK, mm-hmm. I see you. You see me like we're in something together. And so I've experienced that so many times and I needed to I needed to get up on stage and sing these songs over and over and over and say, do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Do you mm. know what I mean? And, and to hear people go, yeah, yeah, because it was such a big hurt that the, you know, and my book, How to Lose Everything, and there's the divorce and there's the leg and that stuff is important. But my sons are really the everything like those losses, you know, I, there's not comparison. They're very different. Mm-hmm. But. I needed my part of my survival was like, can you see me? Can you see me? And then in being seen, I got to say, and I see you too. Oh my God, thank goodness. You know, Mm -hmm. but I would say like, uh, loss is no longer my lover. Like we were, we're close exes. I think it was an (laughs) amicable breakup (laughs) and it's not to say we won't get back together, but Mm -hmm. like, I feel at this point and maybe she still lives in the house, but like, I'm not, it's it's just that relationship with, with grief is not as present in my life mm-hmm. at this point in time. And that is only because a lot of time has passed. Mm-hmm. Like I wrote this book or, you know, even like, like I read the grief bio and like you said, hey, let's give a breath for people who are hearing that the first time because it is a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. And we all have losses. I have happened to have some extraordinary losses but I can talk about them in a way because 
they are in the past now. And I could not have written this book any sooner than I did because I was still in it. Like grief is like this dismantling where you fall to pieces Mm -hmm. and then the healing process or quite literally the creative process is putting pieces together. You know, like a book has a beginning and an end. Like you're putting, it's not a journal. Like I had to craft a thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) that made sense. And so putting pieces together is not work I could have done while I was still actively falling apart, you know? And so Lost like became my lover. And like, it's beautiful that I found that way to move with grief and live with grief. And at this point, there's so much that has grown around my grief I listened to oh and I'm gonna feel maybe I can like look up the name and you can put it in the show notes there was a person I heard an interview on Hidden Brain and this is someone who had also lost a child who was a teenager at the time and the the mother who was being interviewed had been a researcher of resilience before this happened Mm. and then it happened and she was like well okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) like now, now it's time to like experience my research but she talked about for her, and this really rang true to me. And this is kind of I can, this is, I think, maybe the my answer to the question is like the size of grief of her grief had over time never changed. It is the same size, but over time, other life had grown around it, mm. and so maybe you know at one point I just lived in this patch of land of grief, but now there's like all these there's other buildings that came up. There's other plants that grew I walked out of that place and discovered something around the corner like so I can still visit that patch of land it is exactly didn't get smaller it's never going to get smaller Mm -hmm. but the perspective of it has shifted because of what has grown around it and so Mm -hmm. it's something that's just more integrated now for me it took such a long time and and I think even there was some letting go or even grieving of like this year I was like <laughs> my therapist I can just always quote my therapist <laughs> but I was like I think I'm happy oh yeah <laughs> oh I know <laughs> and he was like isn't that weren't isn't that what you've been working towards I was like yes but I didn't think it was gonna happen well, and you like look over your shoulder <laughs> do you do that thing like oh yeah and I'm like what? and I've been similar to like I'm reluctant to say I struggle with my leg sometimes because I don't want people I don't want it to like chip away at my it doesn't align with my politics or something (laughs) but so for me to be like I'm happy I'm okay I'm like does that question that for 10 years I was grief guy that like I got up on stage and was like grief 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 and and now I'm like I'm fine like I (laughs) and like I almost is like this part of my letting go of like a piece of my identity in a way totally So there's even being like a letting go of like, I don't need to hold that in the same way anymore. And that is even now like a little bit of loss, a different kind of loss. And I feel gratitude for that. And also recognizing like, I think I need to let go of being grief guy. Oh, yeah. You know, I I need to write a different book. (laughs) You know, with that, I want to send this song out to Krista's ex-lover, Loss. Mm -hmm. We're going to play Krista's song, Hopeless Situation and send it out, you know, like as we would do. Yeah, you know? a little dedication. Like a little dedication <laughs> to loss here. Yeah. We will play this song and we'll be back in a minute. I am well acquainted with the hopeless situation. I go as far to say that we're good friends. And we hang out on the corner with our other good friend, Sorrow, waiting through the day until it ends. 
Until the street lights are ignited and the parking lots are emptied of their travelers from the day. Among the city planted tulips and forget me nights, what are we? Are we artists here? What are we? Are we artists here? In the soil that I was planted, in the sun I took for granted, my roots and stem were severed from each other. She is charming and disarming and she likes to dance Around the garden of our floundering family tree My love for her is something no one seems to understand What are we? Are we? So that was Christy Couture with Hopeless Situation. And I want to honor, you've spoken a bit about your children here, but I did want to invite the three of them into this space. And mm. and I, I know they're always with you. And yet I, I want to ask, you know, I'm ever grateful that you invite us in to remember them, whether through the book, your social media, your music. Is there anything you'd like to offer or share with us to honor them today? Yeah. I think, I don't know if I've named them in this conversation, so let's bring them Mm. forward. My son, Emmett, who was my firstborn, and my son, Ford, who was my May baby, and my daughter, Sona, who uh, just turned five. Mm. They're each such magical beings. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, I did. I know that we, uh, just following you, that we... We like to name them, so I'm grateful for bringing them in with us. Mm-hmm. I on the the notes we've you know we've talked about death, we've talked about loss, and of course the end of this book, you have a piece that has sparked a project, mm. which by the time we are airing this will be out. <laughs> so I am hoping that you can talk a little bit about the How to Lose Everything animated series. 
Yes. So my book, How to Lose Everything, is now also a series called How to Lose Everything. I mean, I'm just like, I don't know if next is like a video game, How to Lose Everything, (laughs) where the goal is to lose. But so the series, How to Lose Everything, has been a project that has been three years in the making that I've become so passionate about. And it started with that last passage in the book. And when I wrote that last passage called A Field Guide, I could see it animated. I could see it visually. I think partly inspired by Amanda Palmer has an animated piece that's an excerpt from her audiobook. And I'd seen a an animation of part of a Bernie Brown talk. And it, I just was like, ah, I want to do something like that. And um, I was really lucky to get this a development grant from the Canada Council for the Arts called the Creation Accelerator. And it was a partnership with CBC and da-da-da. And that I got to make that film. I co-directed an animated film of that passage with Becky O'Neill, who co-directed and animated it, an incredible, wonderful artist in Northumberland County. And through the process of that development grant and making one film, I created or, or like invited other writers, yourself included, mm-hmm. Smokey Sumac, <laughs> to write other films, the idea being there would be five total. And the thing with that, so that first piece, Field Guide, even in the book and in the short film, it ends with like, this is kind of my sad story. I invite you to tell me yours. And so the other four episodes and kind of the invitation to you and Tara Williamson, Archer Pachowis, and Tucker Lake Partridge, the other writers, was what's yours? What comes to mind? Like, what's your response? If this is the invitation, what's your response? And so we now have these four other films written by the four of you and animated by we have Chief Lady Bird, Megan Kayak Monteith, and Terrell Calder, who is, you know, just like an auntie of Indigenous animation, uh, and Meki Ottawa, who animated yours. Mm-hmm. These beautiful pieces, each one in kind of these different styles and very different stories, um, incredible music. And so each film is about five minutes long. It's on CBC Gem. Um, it's this series of indigenous animation and storytelling and you can watch the films either in English or French because CBC (laughs) Um, but also in the indigenous language of the writer so yours so beautifully is in Tanaka mine and Archer's is in Cree Takralix is in Anuktitut and Tara's is in Anishinaabe Moen I love this project it's been so much work and it's been so wonderful like the first film was my story but like lifting up other people's stories has felt so good when after so long I've been telling my story, telling my story and I'm like, great, this is your story and I'm just going to do the paperwork. <laughs> well, and you did amazing and I want to shout out to Michelle St. John as well yes. who has been amazing on there. What an incredible, incredible project and we will link to it on the website for this podcast and I can't tell you how much of a gift it was to have my work animated mm. by Meki Ottawa, as you said, and to have GR Grit, who is another, um, who is not only doing the sound design and, you know, be, doing amazing work in the background of this podcast, but also was on an episode we just recorded. And they they were my voice in French because I didn't speak French. Yep. Um, and so, of course, it works so closely with you. And just speaking of loss, I just want to mention because we don't get to we'll probably get to talk about this project. You know, we haven't yet because it's not it you're going to be when you're listening to this you'll be going back in time because it's not <laughs> released yet. Yeah. 
And so to say that Krista had reached out to say, well, we have money to do it in Tanaka and to speak of loss and grief. I mean, my mm-hmm. my language there, I was like, ah, I didn't even respond right away. And later she sort of sent a poke email and I was like, ah, this trauma. Like, I don't want to think about this yeah. because I actually asked myself the question of, you know, is my poetry... This is something we talked about in many episodes, but of course I have a book called You Are Enough. Mm-hmm. But uh, is my poetry enough or is it important enough to to use this language and to bring it to the elders? And um, I'll get to, I'm sure there will be other places I get to talk about process, but mm. it was such an incredible gift to be able to do that and to have it in Tanaka. And it's one of the first things I believe that is, is out there yeah. at this level in the language. And so... I do want to share that, and and I'm very grateful to you for for mm. helping with this, for bringing this project to life. I mean, it, what what a what a project! And that is, I think, one of the very powerful aspects of your film in particular, because as much as all like, you know, it, I we can't sort of broadly say like all languages need revitalization, and they do, but like for the Cree and Anishinaabe Moan, like there were options for the Mm -hmm. translators. There were different people who could do that. Well, in in Inuktitut, we were just talking about how it's like when you go up north, it's the first language. Yeah, it's the first language. I mean, there's also so many different dialects. And whereas for for your language, it's not the case. And so it was, I think it's so it's so powerful that it exists and that the elders were able to do the translation work Mm -hmm. because it was just such a different reality than like the Cree translation Mm -hmm. and that's important and for those listeners who don't know um tunaka is a language isolate so we're not related to any other language in the world and we are a very small nation of about a a thousand registered but you know there's there's quite a few more of us out there that aren't (laughs) indian act indians and yeah we have very few speakers left so i i think you know as as you're going into i just want to thank mary masila and Hilly Elizabeth Ignatius that helped get that done because I, I call it my Hail Mary pass because mm-hmm. we didn't know if it was going to get done and so mm-hmm. what a gift to be able to do that and and yeah I think I, I will leave you to go w- witness that project and leave the listeners yeah. to do that um, any last words you want to share with us Krista? No I share that invitation I think what's beautiful about going to watch those films after listening to this conversation is that it's something that Smokey and I also got to do together. <laughs> yes. You know? Well, and the poem, the poem that I chose, which we talked about writing a new piece, and then I was like, no, I think this poem is still mm-hmm. going. And the poem is, Krista is in there. Krista, Krista's lyrics, I was listening. <laughs> Krista is in there. Yeah. It's a love letter to Krista and to, to mothers who have lost children to Krista and to my other friend Tara and to my cousin Lee. So all the the mothers that show up in that. And so I think it's been such a gift to I'm very grateful Chris Dirksen recommended you so mm, many years so ago. So many years for ago. For the of you feast. Too. Thanks. Shout out to Chris. <laughs> Shout out to Chris, who I hope to have on another episode someday down the road <laughs> of Oz Kanaki. I look forward to bringing you more conversations in the future. Take the best care. Thank you, Krista, for being here. Thank you, Smokey. Tachaz. As Kanaki Podcast would like to thank our guest, Krista Couture and Michael Ayat at the National Music Center in Calgary for the session. Thank you also to our podcast team, sound designer, audio engineer, and editor Grayson Grit of Minotan Music, and producer Crystal Strong of Awesome Artist Management. 
would like to thank the Canada Council for the Arts for their generous funding of Season 1. 